Top Sport with Michael Abramson. Marks, go man, go, Maponyane. Oh, Michael, thank you, thank you, man. What an excellent show. Oh, thank you for having that gentleman on there. Marks, go man, go. A true legend of South African football. I, that guy. Fire. Thank you so much. Oh, that's a wonderful compliment to our guest and a man who I remember the very, very first time I left South Africa. I went out of the country. I traveled with Marks. We traveled to the airport together. We flew to Trinidad and Tobago and then Jamaica, I think, when South Africa were trying to get the, the World Cup vote in 2006 with Jack Warner and Bafana Bafana played two friendly matches in the Caribbean. Top Sport on SAFM. So, time to switch tack now. We can talk about Formula One. There was so much happening this weekend. It's hard to keep up to date with everything, but we try and at least give you the interviews that matter. And if we can't cover our items by way of interviews, then we try and give you the sporting stories behind them or some voice clips or something to keep you interested so that once you've listened to the hour of the show, you're up to date with what's happened in the world of sport. We're going to talk Formula One now. Delighted to be joined once again by our Formula One correspondent, Prince Ndiweni, talking to us about race number five, which happened in Miami this past weekend. And a statement win, Prince, for Max Verstappen, once again, avenging what happened in Baku the previous week. Great to be back, Michael. Uh, I think it's going to be a statement couple of races for Max. Once once he gets in this kind of stride, there's, there's no telling how long um, his run of form is going to come. And, and sort of shape up for the season. And maybe we had a bit of a staggered win, uh, win and second place result pattern in the first four races, with Max taking a win and then Checo taking the win in the next race, mm. and them alternating. And now it's Max on the on the on the top step of the podium. But the introduction of more traditional circuits and more normal uh, purpose-built circuits as opposed to street circuits, I think, is going to swing the way of Max Verstappen and. It, it's going to be less of a sort of uh, swing between a uh, back and forth swing between him, him and Checo. But it, it definitely, definitely a solid statement in the sense that no matter what you throw at Max Verstappen in that car, unless the worst of storms just, <laughs> just appears out of nowhere or some some sort of abnormal uh, level of bad luck um, falls on his lap, he's definitely going to bring that Red Bull home in first place. Certainly looks like that at the moment. And he started way, 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 way down on the grid exactly. in ninth position. Didn't take him very, very long to get into second. And then uh, a bit of drama with pit stops and various other things, which we'll get into in a moment. Yeah. And in the end, it was fairly comfortable for him. But that just shows the quality of both the team and the car and, and the rider and with his skills that he could make up all those places just in, in a very short space of time. Exactly. It, it took him 15 laps. Um, I think Fernando Alonso's prediction before the race was that it would take him 25 laps to get to, to first or second place. And it, took, it took Max Verstappen only 15. And look, the Miami GP circuit also, it aided the strengths of Red Bull. I think the longer straight parts of the circuit play to, to the strengths of the car, which is naturally the prowess of the engine, the aerodynamic capability in the straight line. That is just on a level on its own. It's just another pedigree of engineering at the moment. So it definitely helps in that regard. But I also think the car overall just, it can take on many circuits because it works in many, uh, a, a variety of configurations in terms of ride height as well. Because I mean, if you get a, a surface change or an uneven surface and those types of adaptations that teams have to make going to each circuit throughout the season, Red Bull just does the best job in adapting and the car's fine performing in those conditions. 
and the relayering of the Miami circuit and the lack of grip, all those challenges seem to be relatively you know, unnoticed speed bumps for Red Bull mm. as compared to everyone else. I noticed, or I heard a story on another radio station about the fact that before the race, there were some events taking place, typical American Rasmataz, I suppose, and uh, some of the drivers and some of the team officials were very mm. anti what was happening. They were saying people needed yeah. to stand outside there and their mind was fully on the race and that had to be delayed. Yeah. Can you just tell us exactly what happened and what that was all about? So in the build-up to a race, drivers, of course, line up on the starting grid and take their time, go through their procedures with their engineers and their team just to make sure that everything is, is up to standard and they can start the race without a glitch. Now, with Miami, given the just the way the sport has grown in the States and the marketability overall of the sport, is just, it's ballooned massively in the past year or two. There's a bit of a spectacle energy about Formula 1 coming into the country. So the general procedure when it comes to Miami is that someone announced the um, drivers onto the grid, whereas normally they just walk on, you know, without, without any fuss. But LL Coolio was brought out to announce each and every one of the drivers. That's 20 drivers. This is a lot of patience. And each and every one of them get a bit of a paragraph or short line, witty line, or whatever. And which, which is great, I think, for the spectacle, of course, in the show. And in... Uh, Adding a bit of artistry, I would say, to what is a very engineering and performance demanding part of the sport, mm-hmm. you know. But the drivers, of course, traditionally being used to just, you know, getting into the cars and just getting about their business, you understand a lot of them may have been frustrated with that change in their normal procedure. Right. Because at that point, you're getting ready to perform at a very high level. And a lot of the time, athletes, um, and Michael, I know you're familiar with many sporting codes, athletes. Are, are creatures of routine. We're creatures of habit, and they love to sort of stick to that routine as much as possible, so they can perform at the same level as much as possible on a consistent basis. So maybe those kind of things threw the drivers off, and then they all voiced their disdain for it. But not all of them were unhappy with it. I mean, Lewis Hamilton is like he's, he's embracing the fact that the sport is opening up to different crowds and has to sort of do a bit more dynamic things to right. feed it. That, that spectacle energy. So it's still very divisive, and I wonder if we're going to see that um, throughout the rest of the season. I have a question also for you, Prince. Uh, a text message has come through from a friend of mine in Cape Town, Anton. We call him Ponim. He says, what makes Red Bull so good on DRS while other cars don't have the same capabilities? I think it's, it's, a, it's not necessarily about the, once the DRS has been activated. It's just inherently the car because DRS is the great equalizer, Anton. So it's something that every one of the cars generally benefit quite significantly from, a significant spike in increase of speed because you've got less drag, right? Now, with the Red Bull, inherently the car and the chassis itself, it's it's slippery to a very, very much more advanced level than every other car. So the way overall it's built and the way it manages air right from the front all the way through the bodywork on the side and the floor and all the way to the rear, before you've even considered the fact that DRS comes into effect to reduce the amount of air contacting um, the surface area of the car. So overall, it's just a really well-built car. And testament to that is another car. If we don't focus on the Red Bull, we can look at Williams, for example. If you notice, Williams is said to be the slippery car a lot of the time when we go to circuits that have um, high downforce demands 
or rather have a very high drag effect. And Williams tend to, tends to top or be in the top three or top four speed, um, the top speed and straight line speed charts a lot of the time. And that, again, is due to the inherent nature of the car overall, apart from reaching a point where you can use DRS. Because ultimately, DRS, it's a very, it's a, a basic function. It's like the sort of cream on top of what you've already done to build and the foundation that you have laid. So I think that's where all the work comes in and, and the aerodynamic um, strength and prowess of Red Bull really is what works and by the time you're using DRS, it's just on top of a very, very solid foundation. I think you've been through that really, really nicely. So, Anton, hopefully that clarifies your question. Uh, Prince, just looking at the, the the other top finishers, obviously taking Red Bull out of the equation, Alonso ending third. His season's been pretty consistent. Obviously, he doesn't seem to be able to compete with, with Red Bull 1 and 2, but still turning in consistent performances. Lewis Hamilton ending in sixth spot and Leclerc ending down in seventh. What happened to them in terms of their races? Oof. Oh, jeez. Ferrari is just... Look, Ferrari came in this weekend uh, with... This past weekend, rather, with upgrades to their car, actually. They had a diffuser adjustment. It's a new diffuser they had. So the diffuser basically manages the way air is flowing from the rear of the car, so how it leaves the back of the car as it's traveling forward. The better job a diffuser does um, to do that, the more car, the more the car has that downforce and is sort of pushed into the ground, and that obviously um, translates into speed. Now, it's a significant upgrade. It's just one, but it is quite significant. And I thought, okay, maybe this is going to be their jump, and then they sort of... Um, continuation of the form from Baku, but didn't seem to be the case. The team struggled with tire management. Charles Leclerc was bemoaning, excuse me, Charles Leclerc was bemoaning um, both he and, and Carlos actually were bemoaning the fact that struggling with tires, struggling with the overall balance of the car, not very stable at the front, it seems, at, at the, from mid to front, it's just they, they didn't get quite get a hang of how the car is. Um, one corner they go in and the, the rear end is loose perhaps and then the next they go in and the rear end is solid and and it, it, it sort of threw them off and they couldn't find a rhythm and it's difficult enough to have a car doing that in, a, in an ideal circuit with Miami you, you factor in the fact that the grip levels were constantly changing throughout um, the race and throughout the weekend because it was it was a newly laid track and you also factor in that teams didn't get much long runs during the practice sessions because there you need to know how the car behaves and performs with heavy fuel loads, as is the case with early on in the race versus later on. And teams didn't get to experience that. So all of those things come into effect. And ultimately, Ferrari pretty much weren't prepared for the challenges that were coming their way. So it's, they just have to continue bringing the upgrades. Unfortunately, it's, it's just going to be a fact-finding mission and trying to tweak as they go along. And in the meantime, the likes of Mercedes are going to be picking up the spoils because second or third, fourth place, that's where Ferrari should be primarily. And Aston Martin obviously seem to be to have dibs on that position. But if Ferrari aren't there on the day, Mercedes definitely are on to, to pick up the pieces. Prince, thank you so much as always. I wanted to get into a chat to you about the tyres situation, using hard tyres as opposed to medium tyres. Yeah. and also. But I suppose we'll get into that. We'll give you a week's break this week because no Formula One action. <laughs> we'll chat to you ahead of Imola on the 19th and then Monte Carlo, those back-to-backs uh, towards the end of the month. Thank you so much and have a, have a good rest and get into the spirit when we get to race six and race seven. Great to chat to you. Absolutely. Always a pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much. That's Prince and Duenia, our Formula One correspondent, always keeping us 
on the button, so to speak, in terms of what's happening in Formula One. Top Sport with Michael Abramson. Mark's Go Man Go Maponyane text message from TG. And he said, I must ask you, which defender used to give you a tough time? Yeah, in particular uh, at Paris, uh, there's a, a name called Mpaso. That was his nickname. I'm sure the listeners will help me with the name and the surname. That man who just hit you with the ball and everything. And he wouldn't just hit you with the ball. He goes through you <laughs> because you are in front of him. Bongani Mungwe in Durban and he says that the defender that you mean is Kamanga Mbazo. I remember even his first name, Moses Kamanga. Top Sport on SAFM. Plenty happening in the rugby world this past weekend and we're delighted to have on the show a, a voice that you won't have heard on the station too many times before, a former international rugby player. He played for Ireland in the early 2000s, in fact right throughout the 2000s, former international hooker. Also played for Connacht and for Leinster, two sides who are through to the semi-finals of the United Rugby Championships. His name is Bernard Jackman. Bernard, wonderful to have you on the show. Welcome from Ireland. No, thanks for the invitation, Michael. So great to chat to you. That, that Irish anthem when he plays at rugby matches, the uh, Ireland's call, it's, to me, it stirs up all sorts of emotions. And I suppose with Connacht, Le- uh, Leinster and Munster making it through, just Ulster missing out, uh, it's been a really, really good time of late for Irish rugby. Yeah, it's been brilliant. Our, our under-20s won the, the Grand Slam. Uh, so that's our first back-to-back Grand Slam. We won it last year as well. And obviously, mm-hmm. Ireland were lucky enough to win the, the, the Grand Slam at senior men's level, our, our number one in the world. And uh, with three out of four teams left in the in the URC. So we're nearly... Um, we're waiting for it all to fall apart, to be honest, because yeah. uh, we're not used to um, having this kind of success uh, across num- numerous different teams. Well, three of the four proud provinces are, are, are through, I suppose. But uh, Ireland's winning the Triple Crown, as you say, the Grand Slam, the Six Nations for the first time in, in five seasons. Obviously, uh, Ireland are doing something right. Now at number one in the world rugby rankings. So what do you attribute the, the sudden success to? Look, I think we've got... Um, we still have the, we're still backboned by very good private schools who are producing players um, that are nearly ready to play at 18, 19. And then... You know, we only have four provinces. Everything is everybody is contracted to the IRFU, even though it's true the pro- provincial setup are the, the top fifteen players who are on central contracts. But mm-hmm. everything is controlled. Um, you know, they spend a lot of money on good coaching, good S and C, uh, good medical, and also, as I said, the, there's such competition to get into those academy places. Like Leinster only take five players every year mm. in in the academy, but there's hundreds and hundreds of real top quality players who want to play for Leinster, for example. Um, and I think that competition at schoolboy level, which you obviously have in South Africa, and then a very narrow funnel. So only, you know, four spots uh, or four provinces that they can possibly go to. Right. And it's not like we don't have a player drain like like you guys do or the All Blacks do. Mm. Um, you know, there's, the pay is quite good here for players. And also there's a, there's a tax incentive for players who who uh, stay in Ireland. So none of our best players are, are playing abroad. So it's it's much easier to control it. And it's working well at the moment. Also, the news that we received a few weeks ago is the fact that current Springbok coach Jacques Ninabo will be joining Leinster after the World Cup. What do you think he might he might bring to, to, to the side that it might be lacking at the moment? Because it seems if Leinster are really very much at the top of their game. Yeah, look, it's an amazing 
bit of business by Leinster, I think, to be able to get someone like Nina Barr um, across the board. Um, he's replacing a guy called Stuart Lancaster, who's yes, been here yes. five or six years and is going to Racing 92. And had a very different... and that, Well, it kind of takes two men to replace uh, Stuart Lancaster because he's one of the few coaches who does attack and defence. Um, so what they're doing is they're promoting from within. Andrew Goodman's going to take on the attack and then Jack Nina Barr is going to come in and look after defence. And I think, you know, he was in Ireland before. He was with Munster when Razzie was here. Um, unbelievably highly regarded by the players in Munster. That word of mouth um, got to the Leinster players, and I think when they when they realised they needed a new coach, you know they were very much in the year of the the board to say, look, at, can you try and get someone like uh, Jacques Nienabar because mm. um, his reputation speaks for itself. So a big bit of business for Leinster, and they'll obviously hope that they can send Stuart Lancaster away with the European the Champions Cup and a URC double, which is. Haven't, hasn't been done by Leinster for, I think, seven or eight years. So, um, And they're in good contention. They played a semi-final on Saturday against Munster in the URC at home. And then they have La Rochelle in the Champions Cup final the week after. But uh, I think everybody in Irish will be excited to see Nino Barr come to Leinster and see what he can do. Having South African teams in Northern Hemisphere competitions, I mean, South African provinces have traditionally played against Australian teams, New Zealand teams, but just having that Southern Hemisphere rugby competition in your in your um, Northern Hemisphere competition, so to speak, what what extra dimension has it brought to to the to the United Rugby oh, Championship? Look, it's it's been phenomenal, really, and and um, you know, last year obviously it was an All South African final with the Bulls uh, playing the Stormers, um, the two best games. I've been to the New York Sea this year. We're both in Dublin. Um, once Leinster played the, the Sharks earlier on in the year and then Leinster played the Stormers. Um, so they have added a huge amount of quality. I know the travel is, is obviously difficult for them mm. and that's hopefully something that can be sorted out in terms of business class flights at least or try and limit the amount of tra- times they have to come up here. But they've added a, a, a huge amount and um, obviously the Stormers are the defending champions. They have a home semi-final this weekend against Connacht and you know, you'd be a brave man to bet against them retaining their trophy. So um, they're setting the standard and I think the Irish provinces are, are trying to, to catch them and, and we'll see over the next three weeks whether it's been possible this year. Well, if it is going to be a, a Leinster Stormers final, which uh, might well be the case, it's going to be a really pulsating battle north against south. Just briefly, Ireland and South Africa in the same group at the, at the Rugby yeah. World Cup. Scotland also in that group. That's going to be qu- quite an interesting battle in the group yeah, stage. The, the group of hell, um, three teams who I think are all uh, very much targeting this this uh, World Cup and all are going to be in a much better place than they were a year ago. Um, and yeah, I think that's going to be a massive game for us. Both games against Scotland and South Africa. And uh, I, I really think South Africa are going to come good at this World Cup again and, and obviously do their, put their best foot forward to retain their trophy. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you, Bernard. I love that Irish accent on our show. It just gives it an extra bit of flavor, extra bit of dimension. Uh, Thank you so much for chatting to us and uh, full strength to Irish rugby going forward because they really are an attractive side to watch. And let's hope we can chat to you again on the show in the days and weeks ahead. Anytime. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. That is Bernard Jackson, who is a former international hooker, as I say, played for Ireland from 2000 to 2008. Also played for Connacht and for Leinster, two of the sides in the semi-finals. Connacht, by virtue of having caused the upset at the weekend and winning their match, they now have to travel to Cape Town to host to play the Stormers. We thought that it might be a send-off for Kitsov last week. It would be his last home match, but he's going to have another chance. And who knows what could happen after that? So Stormers play Connacht on Saturday. 
Leinster play Munster and those two winners will meet in the final. But as you heard, Leinster also play La Rochelle in the Heineken Champions Cup. So Irish rugby doing particularly well at the moment. They are number one in the world as far as the world rankings are concerned. Let's go to some of your voice notes. Good evening, Michael. It's me, Joseph, here in the Eastern Cape in East London. To answer your question, Net Bank Cup final has been won on uh, extra time on three occasions. I thank you. All right. Interesting. The listeners not telling us which occasions. We've had three as a certain answer. We've had other answers. Let me just quickly give you an update on what's happening between Brighton and Hove Albion at home to Everton at the Amex. It's still 3-0 to Everton. This will be an amazing win for Everton under the former Burnley coach, Sean Dyche, who is taking them out of the relegation zone as we speak. Let me just have a quick look at the table. Everton would move from right near the bottom to 16 spots. If it stays like this, they'll have 32 points. Leicester 30, Leeds 30, Forest 30 and Southampton 24. But don't forget that Forest and Southampton play later this evening. Okay, let me give you the answer then to the quiz question. Thanks again to all our listeners for contributing. And we hope that we've kept you up to date with so many different sporting codes as we try to do every night on the show. So the answer, since becoming the Nedbank Cup, in fact, only two finals have gone to extra time. In 2014-2015, Sundowns beat then Ajax 4-3 on penalties. The match was actually nil-nil after normal time and after extra time. It was played at the Nelson Mandela Bay Stadium in Rebetha and it ended in Sundowns' favour by four goals to three on penalties. And then, of course, in the 2021-22 final, last year's final, Sundowns needed extra time to get past Maruma Gallants by two goals to one. That match played at the Royal Buffaking Sports Palace. So those are the only two finals that have indeed gone to extra time since becoming the Nedbank Cup. So hope you've learned something. Hope you've had fun. Hope your teams won over the weekend. If they didn't, there's always the next weekend to come. Plenty of rugby to look forward to. Plenty of soccer to, to look forward to. Amajimbo's play on Wednesday night against Senegal. Let's see how they do. And interesting battles, in, particularly in the relegation zone in the English Premier League. Hope you've enjoyed the show from my producer, Len, from Sylvester behind the controls. We say thank you. I'm Michael Abramson, back with you again tomorrow evening to talk more from the world of sport. But in the meantime, have yourself a great weekend. Songezo is next on the show and news comes first with Greg Chaus. Good evening.